on that Nevada hunt. So the very next year, um, I, again, I couldn't even find a, a bull over 340 the rest of the season. The very next year, a hunting fool member drew the tag. And I told him about a little burn that I had found a bunch of bulls in. He went in there the very first day, same exact time I was in there the last year, saw a really big bull up on the, in the burn, which I only saw, you know, smaller, like three, 320 type bulls and went up on the ridge, blew a cow call once the bull walked in 10 yards broadside, shot it through the heart. It was 372. Oh God. Literally tore that mountain apart the year before. And I told him exactly where to go glass and look at this thing. And he kills a 370 bull right there. So yeah, some of it's luck too. Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast with myself, Cody Rich. This feed is home to the best elk hunting podcast that I've done over the last seven years. And if you want to be a better elk hunter, then you're in the right place. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. This is not the end-all, be-all course. If you're a 101 level, no no expertise, no elk knowledge, do not take this course. Uh, this is zero fluff. It's my four-step system, right? So it's going to be over a few, a few of you guys' heads, but honestly, this is such a great framework to build off of. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Alrighty, welcome to Wapiti Wednesday, Jared Lyle. I don't know how I haven't had you on the podcast yet, but uh, I'm pretty stoked for this one. You said you know everything about elk hunting. Is that right? <laughs> no. Nope. What I said is I know everything not to do, so I could tell you that, and then you should have some success if you don't duplicate what I'm doing. <laughs> I had uh, John Barkle on last week. He's like, he's like, whatever my intuition says I should do, I just sh- I should do the opposite of that because that like my intuition is 100% wrong. <laughs> I was like, well, at least you know that. So true at times. That is very, very true. So, no, I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate it. Uh, so, we're going to talk about elk hunting. Uh, I feel like you're kind of one of the under the radar guys uh, that knows what he's talking about, even if you're too humble to say so. So, we're going to dive into that. But first, let's. Uh, one of the things I like to do is kind of give people context for the types of terrain you hunt, the types of elk you hunt. Um, because if I get a guy on from Arizona, obviously, hunts different than the guy who's from North Idaho. So, like, give us kind of a 30,000-foot view on a little bit of your elk background, what types of terrain you like to hunt, and maybe, like, what your kind of go-to style of hunting is. All right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because it does vary a lot. And I've been fortunate enough to hunt a lot of different habitats. I grew up in Salmon, Idaho, um, and then I spent the last 16 years before moving down here to Cedar City, Utah. I lived in northwest Montana. And so I've grown up hunting public land over-the-counter units for the most part. I've always applied. I've you know, been applying for 20 years for, for good tags. And occasionally I get one. But for the most part, I always plan my season around, you know, kind of that Idaho, Montana habitat. And like Montana is a great example because if you hunt the northwest corner where I lived, um, you're hunting, you know, stuff that's steeper and brushier than Kodiak, Alaska, right? <laughs> it's just nasty stuff. Um, and then conversely, if you go out and hunt the Missouri breaks or out in the Southeast corner, out in the Custer national forest, you know, you're a lot closer to hunting New Mexico and Arizona kind of habitat. So you can kind of have it all in Montana. And, um, honestly, I've migrated away from the thick brush. I grew up kind of cutting my teeth on that. 
Um, you rely on the calls a lot in the brush, um, which I'm sure we'll end up talking about calling or not calling and all that kind of stuff as well later on. But um, I like to see what I'm going after. I've gotten a little bit pickier. And so I try to find areas that are at least somewhat conducive to glassing so I can, you know, weed through elk that I may not want to chase or call in. Yeah, 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 which is funny. I mean, most kids know, like, that's kind of my background. I started out calling, hunting thick brush. As you get pickier, you start hunting more open country so you can see what you're going after. Uh, and slowly, I don't know if it's a move away from the calls. I haven't, I haven't even come to that conclusion yet. Um, but I guess kind of circling into that, it's like, what's your opinion? Like, are you a calling guy now or you just don't, you set them, set them down or is it kind of dependent on the terrain? Well, I've said this before on other podcasts. It's it, it's not something I'm proud of, but I like to call. Um, yeah. Sort of like liking to have a cocktail. <laughs> one time too many a week. It's counterproductive for my physical fitness. Um, and I know, I know that calling elk is counterproductive for killing the biggest bulls. Like, I think that's just a real thing. I mean, I know some guys that kill consistently kill really big bulls and do a lot of calling. You know, like Casey Brooks is a good example of that. And he's a dang good caller. Um, but... And I, and I think I'm decent with the elk calls and a lot of it's about tone, volume and cadence and not necessarily knowing exactly what a cow sounds like or what yeah. a bull sounds like. It's more about kind of communication, but I love to call. I try not to desperately. I'll even hide my own calls from myself at times, you know, like I'm going to put <laughs> to my back. So like, you know, and then pretty soon I find myself on a bugle a little too often, but you know, and I, I have killed a few of my biggest bulls by calling them in too. So it can work. It's something I think every elk hunter should be good at, even if it's just a matter of trying to stop an elk at the right time with a with a mouth call, um, you know, when he's coming through a shooting lane. So I do think you should be good with, good at it. I do think the vast majority of people, including myself, overcall. You know, what's funny is I think it boils down to being a good caller is more about discipline and knowing when not to call than knowing when to call. And I, that's something I have struggled with, too, is like I will quite literally take my call out of my mouth put it in its holder and put it back in my pocket so i don't like because it's if in my mouth i'll just start making noise with it and <laughs> you know like so you almost have to like guard yourself from calling too much but I, I would agree with that like i don't think calling is necessarily the end-all be-all or it's probably screwed up a lot of hunts for me but i've screwed up other hunts it's, you know it's been as successful as it's been not successful so it's kind of hard to say uh but i do think that like if you want to be the best caller in the world probably has a heck of a lot more discipline on when not to call than when to call. I think that's super smart. I mean, you know, honestly, that's, I'm the same way. There's been times where I've even just established timelines. Like I'm not going to call again for 12 minutes. Like just know that it, it's like a fidget spinner, right? Yeah. If it's hand, I might do too. So just like you're saying, it, it's really elk tend not to over mature elk tend not to over communicate a lot right yeah um immature elk are a little chattier i think as a general rule that's just kind of a jared lyle hypothesis for what it's worth but you know um a big bull tends to communicate a lot when he's you know tending his harem and 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 all that kind of stuff but he's not trying to get me to come in there and harass him when he's doing that yeah. he's really, you know telling other ladies he's there telling the current ladies that he's dominant and that you know he, they've made a good choice to <laughs> To, to you know hook their wagon to him so to speak so you know i think a lot of that's just understanding the psychology behind why elk call in the first place and you know i've heard a lot of people that sound really really good on calls 
that have terrible timing, um, mm. terrible cadence, and make those bad decisions. So I love what you said there that it's more about discipline on when not to call, I think. Yeah. For me, it's been like, I, I found that curiosity has killed the cat more often than it hasn't. You know what I mean? Like elk, you, you can you can make an elk very curious by not calling. And then usually curiosity kills that cat because he's going to have to do something to figure that out. Um, which And this happened because more often than not in my younger years, it was the other way around. Like curiosity would kill this cat. <laughs> so, so like... <laughs> Bull was still there. I thought he left. And, you know, eventually I'd go investigate and Bull would spook. Like that was like, oh, that happens all the time. So then I just kind of like started doing that to the elk. And like I I would try. That's like when I when I try to make myself be patient or be disciplined with the calls, I always tell myself curiosity kills the cat. Curiosity kills the cat. Like let that situation develop slowly and not try to rush in and make it happen. That's great advice. You know, I mean. I think I think having little mantras like that throughout your elk hunting day is really important. There's there's different mantras that I think are important at different times. And that one's a great one. I, I don't use it specifically, but I use a version of it where, you know, I just and I think I got this from Dan Evans. I can't take credit for this, but, you know, Dan kills a lot of big bulls. And I was fortunate to work for, work for Dan, work with Dan at Trophy Taker for 14 years. And, you know, I, I stumbled around the woods with him a few times um, running camera and other things like that. And Dan's an excellent elk caller, but he will be the first to tell you, I don't want to call elk, right? You know, I mean, he, he he's has the same, he's more disciplined than I am. <laughs> um, but, you know, he doesn't like to have to rely on the calls at all, but he's very capable of it. And uh, it was actually a story. He killed a big bull in, I think it was 1996 in North Idaho, like a 360 bull, just a big, big old mature bull. And when he was telling me the story of how he, you know, was on this bull all day long and just was so sporadically given a little cow call here or there, just enough so that that bull, you know, basically playing hard to get, but not even that. It was more just like, Hey, I'm here, but I'm not that interested, you know? And, um, I've tried to duplicate that with quite a bit of success where, um, they know you're there. They can hear that they can pinpoint that sound so well. It's uncanny how yeah. well know exactly where that sound is and if you tell yourself he knows i'm here or like you're saying curiosity kills a cat he knows i'm here i just need to be patient i need to be you know elk aren't on a timeline that's the other thing we screw up right totally We're all, all the time like ah it's gonna be dark at eight o'clock you know i gotta get this done or and they're not they take their food everywhere they go their bed everywhere they go they you know they're on guard 24 7 and so you know our timeline kills us a lot of times uh, I 100% agree with that. And I think that's like some of the best advice anyone could ever get. It's like things go really slow. And I think you spend enough time around elk, you'll realize that like they don't have an agenda. They don't have anywhere to go. Like they could stand there and look at a leaf for an hour and, <laughs> and be like, nope, it's nothing. And then walk off. You know what I mean? Like you see it, right? You've seen a deer stare at a leaf for like a solid hour and do nothing about it. Like th that's their day. Like that's what their life consists of. You know, and I think we like try to wrap like human timeline into that, like trying to get it done, trying to do this. And there's time for that, but there's definitely patience. <laughs> everyone says, you know, everyone likes to say, yeah, like patience, good hunters have patience, these things. But I don't know if people really understand what that means. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yep. Uh, in your opinion, like what is a patient hunter or like what makes patience? Well, I think. I think mantras do like, like you just said, with your curiosity kills a cat. I have a little mantra when 
when I finally get in the game, I mean, the, the time to work really hard, in my opinion, is to get, you know, into the game, into the zone as quickly and efficiently as you can without screwing stuff up, keeping the wind right, not bumping into a satellite, you know, bull or whatever. Although that, that can actually go pretty good at times. We'll maybe talk about that later. But bottom line is, I have a little mantra once I finally am in that zone. It's like just, you know, if I get as close as I can for as long as I can, good things will happen. And I just tell myself that. So and that keeps me patient because there's times where, <clears throat> you know, you'll get to a tree or a piece of topography that you're as close as you can get without, you know, the patience in you has to say, dude, the odds of me getting any closer in this terrain right now are so small. It's not worth what yeah. I'm going to by closing the gap another 60 yards or whatever, right? And so that's that's how I define patience is like the ability to recognize the situation and say, I'm in the best possible position that I am right now and my odds are too low of doing anything else. Blowing a call is probably gonna cause a problem. It's not gonna help. Or trying to get to that bush, I'm probably gonna get busted and I'm gonna have to relocate these elk three miles from here in another canyon after I screw it all up. Yeah. It's not and so being willing to lay there in the hot sun, baking down on your face, for six, seven, eight, nine hours, that kind of patience, I think, is what it what kills more elk. Oh man. In a zone. But again, like I said, you gotta get to that spot where you're like, okay, I'm as close as I can. I'm gonna be here as long as I can and good things will happen. How do you know when to make a move and when not to? I mean, that can be tough because wind can there's a thousand variables. I don't know if you have any like stories uh, where you struggled with that decision on like when to approach a bull or when not to, but for me it's like I've sat there on the mountainside and, and paced back and forth, like, yep, yeah, going and then come back. Oh, not going <laughs> back and forth. Uh, and that's tough because if you don't know, if you don't have a lot of experience, you're not going to know when to make an approach, when not to make an approach. No, I think that's an excellent point. And I don't think there is a right answer. There's it's so circumstantial. Um, you know, I've had those times where I've been patient and thought I should have been rewarded. And I've laid, you know, next to a bull that's bedded for, you know, 40 yards away for, four or five hours and only to have the wind all of a sudden have that tiny little swirl and boom, it's over. And then of course your immediate reaction is, well, I should have got more aggressive. Right. Yeah. But I don't think that was probably the right call. I think the patience was the right call in spite of the weird little wind shift that just busted your day. Um, so yeah, I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer. I will say this, you know, this is the other thing that um, I really like that I've heard from Dan a lot. And he said that, you know, success breed success a lot better. You know how we always, humans, we talk about learning from our failures all the time. Yeah. The problem is in the elk woods, to be perfectly honest, there are so many ways you can screw it up <laughs> that you may, you may learn this lesson today, but you've got a thousand more to learn. And, you know, I know guys that haven't killed elk in 10 years or 20 years of hunting them with a bow. Um, and what Dan has said is, man, when you finally do get successful, boy, you take careful notes of those successes and the little things that made the difference, um, because it, it will breed more success so much faster than trying to learn from your mistakes. And I know that that's that doesn't really sound like a great solution, right? Like, <laughs> hey, get successful and you'll be more successful. Um, but the point is, is when you are, when you do have those successes, take really careful notes of what made that circumstance happen different than the others, because those little things are more duplicatable than trying to learn from all the mistakes. Do you think that great elk hunters, um, you know, like the Casey Brooks's or the Dan Evans of the world, do you think that they are really good at one particular thing or are they a jack of all trades? I think they're a jack of all trades. I think, 
you know, elk are an interesting animal. They can live in almost any habitat from cactus desert to alpine terrain, right? And they behave differently in different environments. Um, I know that I think all of those guys have uh, killed them in a bunch of different ways. I know, you know, from tree stands to ground blinds to spot and stock to shooting them in their bed to intercepting them to calling them in. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, it's one of those deals where you just have to kind of c consider all the variables in this particular hunt and make your decisions accordingly. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's a kind of a crappy answer. It sounds like I'm running for office. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, I get it. Like, there's, it seems like they're like, early days you find something that works and this is like when you're talking about like okay find something that works for you and repeat it and I, I think that works for a while uh you know for me it was like bugling right bugling and challenging and getting close and like just trying to go through as many elk as you can to find that one that's going to fight and then you're going to you're going to call one in and that works it does and I, I it's always tough to have these conversations because like there's guys that are listening to this podcast that are trying to kill their first elk and there's guys that are listening to this podcast that are trying to kill a 370 bull. Uh, those are two conversations that are hard to have in the same podcast, right? Uh, because I do really believe that getting, and I tell guys all the time, like get at bats. You need to get as many at bats as you can because you're going to, like you may get close to a lot of elk, but you're still going to whiff it on a lot of bulls before you, you know, connect with one. And you need to go through that cycle. Now, once you get there, for me, like kind of the journey was like, calling bulls like i i really like bugling bulls and that seemed to work and i would challenge bulls until one would fight and then i would you know kill it and that still works but when you want to be the you know get to the next level you want to kill 350 plus bulls a lot of times or there's top bracket bulls right the top 10 percent of the uh bulls in an area doesn't matter what size uh then you have to like start thinking outside the box you have to get good at other things you got to become proficient knowing when to follow the herd uh, understanding elk, how they move, how bulls interact, or like how to do these things. And like, as someone who just bugled and challenged every bull that came by, you don't learn a lot about following a herd. You don't learn a lot about like when to, to move on a herd of elk, when to not move on a herd of elk, you know, oh, they're coming out to feed at night. Should I, you know, intercept them there? Or should I try to get them in their bedroom? Like all these things, like, and so as me, for me as an elk hunter, like I'm always trying to learn new things put new tools in that toolbox and become more proficient. So you can, I feel like I want to be so at some point be at the ability to where I can like, okay, any bull, any unit in the country, like I know how to go get that done. Now that's a far cry from where I am today, obviously. And I think everyone is kind of there, but like, that's kind of the goal, right? Is like be more proficient. I do think the top level guys, they have a lot of tools in their chest. Yeah, and I think you touched on it. The number one tool, I think, is confidence, right? And that confidence comes from a bunch of different scenarios. I mean, one, equipment, you know, yeah. and, and I don't know how far down that rabbit hole we want to go. But, you know, you should put yourself in stressful shooting situations. Uh, to your point, you want to get a lot of at-bats. You want to get a lot of at-bats in your shooting as well. Because a lot of I, – I was a good elk hunter right out of the gate just because I, I lived around them a lot. I started when I was really young. I had the luxury of living in elk country, you know, that somebody yeah. from Michigan doesn't have. So I was spoiled in that regard. But I was a terrible mental midget when it came time <laughs> to get home. Like, I mean, I could whiff on – I mean, the first bull I finally killed with a bow was, I think, in the early 90s. And I missed him at, like, 18 yards broadside. My pen didn't even get to his chest, fired <laughs> a brush under him, you know, like, just 
busted down, peed down my leg. And, and, you know, he ran out and stopped at like 40 and I shot at him again and hit him in the juggler vein right up by the jaw. Oh, wow. Uh, and killed him, you know, killed him very efficiently, but very luckily. And it wasn't until, you know, it was several years in and I'd killed a few bulls by that time that I realized it was like, man, I got to get my shooting under control. I got to figure out how to, you know, so I think that's a super important part because then that takes one more variable out of it when you head into the woods. You're not yeah. going, ah, can I make the shot, you know, or at that moment of truth, you have that confidence come over you that's like, okay, I just have to do my mental mantras again mm-hmm. with it inside. So I think that's super big. And, you know, 3D shoots, shoot for money with friends. Like here at Hunt and Fool, we do a little morning shoot off every Monday where if you're the furthest out, you got to buy all the burgers for a Wednesday lunch, you know, or whatever. And it puts pressure on you. And we, you know, stagger our way out 10 yards at a time. Yeah. And those kind of things are at bats, in my opinion, um, that, you, you know, unfortunately, we don't live in Africa or where you can literally get hundreds of shot opportunities a year maybe yeah uh, we get a couple like yeah. if you're an american hunter you're probably going to get a few at bats with real fur in front of you so create that somewhere else i think is important so back to your point they confidence i think is number one because not only are they confident in their equipment but two they're confident in the scenario like i used to think elk were this super complex creature right i'd be laying awake at night thinking about them basically thinking about them thinking about me which what <laughs> They're just thinking about living. Yeah. And, you know, I had all these schemes to go out and dig holes in these flats at night and put boards over it and sleep in the middle of them. And like, and then, you know, eventually you realize they're a pretty simple creature um, that just requires you again to get close for an extended period of time. And you can kill any of those animals, you know, the, the herd bull per se. Back to your point, I think size gets us a little off track what we're you know what i really like to do is try to hunt you know that older age class for the given unit and yeah. state hunting right and that might be a 300 inch bull i don't know for sure you know i'll be happy over that if, if i'm hunting an over-the-counter unit in idaho that's about what i usually am trying to chase yeah um but yeah i think simplifying that a little bit gives you confidence too where you're like hey this is just an elk um they're not they're not running math problems in the background <laughs> Yes. You know, they're going to use their nose and their eyes and their ears. And if I can try to beat those three things and get close, I'm probably going to have a chance to kill this bull. And that calms you down too, I think. And makes you more patient. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I like that idea of like simplifying it. And I, man, I talk about this with just finding out. I think people think about elk hunting in multiple pieces. And in reality, it's like hunter find elk, hunter get close to elk, hunter shoot elk. That's it. You know, like it's it's that simple. It is. No, that's absolutely it. It's um, like find elk as fast as you can, get close to elk as patiently as you can, and then kill elk as efficiently as you can. That's it. Yep. Then manage yourself enough to make a good shot when it when it counts, when you finally yeah. get the earned opportunity. Yeah, it is it does help me stay calm. Um I do think that people back to finding elk, I, I think that you know, there's a lot of mistakes. I mean, I think about a t- uh, an individual, a tech call I had at Trophy Taker years ago. And the guy had been hunting an over-the-counter unit in Oregon, which there are some good over-the-counter units. Um, but a, he'd hunted the same particular area for like eight years. He was coming from California and driving up there. And he con- he told me, he said, well, I've heard one bugle in the dark in like eight years. And I'm like, you got to move. Like, <laughs> 
I can't tell you where you need to go. I can tell you where you shouldn't go again, and that's where you have been. And um, I think you got to have a real serious case of Lewis and Clark syndrome uh, if you're hunting elk. You've got to be confident to move, look at new country. Um, and all too often, I find people get really trapped in their their plan A or what worked last year. Yeah, I'm sure you guys get that a lot. With I mean, you guys take a lot of calls and talk to a lot of hunters. I have seen this as well as people will say, "Hey, listen, I've been hunting." here in Oregon or Washington for five years, you know, I'm thinking about going to this unit and I'm like, just like, you have to switch it up. I mean, you're shopping for a wife in a gay bar right now. Like you have to go somewhere else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, like plating yourself in the right area is like just far and above the best thing you could do for finding elk. Like you could be able to find a lot more elk. Like, like go to an area with a lot. And this goes back to like at-bats. You, you, if you're just starting out, go to areas where you can get a lot of at-bats. Don't worry about whether there's a 320 bull or a 350 bull or what that top end looks like. Go to a unit where there's high bull to cow ratio and a ton of elk or over objective. Like just start there. Just start with like overpopulation objective. That's a good place to go. I mean, would you agree? Like, is that good advice? A hundred percent. And yeah, back to your you're, I liked what you said that it's hard to have a podcast on one podcast and cover yeah. beginners all the way through advanced elk hunters. So talking about beginners, that's perfect advice. We we have that conversation all the time. The other thing that I would advise is, particularly if you haven't had the luxury of growing up in the West and you're coming out like on your first elk hunt or you've had a few and maybe haven't had any success yet, there's a little bit of a mentality struggle that creates its own mental block in that you're used to getting one, quote unquote, every year in the Midwest, right? The deer are managed. If you have a 40 acre piece of property and you hunt enough days in your tree stand, you're probably going to fill your tag every year. And maybe even a couple doe tags to boot or maybe even a couple buck tags. And the, a lot of our members who are kind of first starting to elk hunt want to take that same mentality into the elk woods. And the numbers don't lie. On public land over the counter elk hunts, for the mo most part, nine out of 10 guys go home without an elk, right? It's 10 to 15% harvest success, even with today's equipment advances and everything else. And so sort of, I guess, exonerating yourself or relieving yourself of that pressure that I have to get one. will have you, you'll have more fun in the woods. You'll make better decisions. It's just like an athlete. If you're playing tight, you don't, you know, we're, I've been watching the Michael Jordan, uh, series on Netflix or whatever now and dude when that guy was his, at his best is when he was the loosest like he's just you know um Didn't not care. about it yeah exactly could really get out of his own head and I think that's an important part like I have a lot of theories that we're our own worst enemy inside our head more than anywhere else um and so anyway that would be one piece of advice the other piece going back to calls um you, you made me think of this I would say my advice to a new hunter coming out to hunt elk would be use the calls to locate elk. Don't assume that because an elk is answering back, he wants to keep talking to you all day or that he's coming in. Use the calls to get one to talk to you, figure out where they're at, and then get in as close as you can. And you'll learn way more in a day of ghosting a herd than in 10 years of calling in that every 20th raghorn bull that behaves unlike most other elk and charges into your calls. Oh. You know, back to what you were saying about ghosting along with the herd. I've learned so much more in a day of 
being right on the fringe of an elk herd than I ever learned and getting lucky on that, you know, one every 10, 20 bulls that actually charges in. No, I would agree with that. I, I, I have very little, I mean, I, I did it as a kid. Like I would just follow herds of elk like, through the woods because I was obsessed with elk, but, um, and I've done it a fair amount. I wouldn't say I haven't done it, but that's definitely not my greatest skill as an elk hunter is being able to follow a herd. Uh, like when did that transition happen for you to like hunting in Northwest Montana to going to like, okay, I'm going to, you know, just ghost. The, I'm going to follow the herd. I like the ghosting term, ghosting the herd. Like, was that a, due to like, was that because you hunted with Dan Evans? Was it because you just like found that that was more successful or like you know, what kind of spurred that? Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, I, it, again, I'm a slow learner. So <laughs> admittedly I, I chased hundreds of herd bulls off yeah. with my right you know that again i was assuming that because he was aggressively bugling back and cutting me off or whatever that we were we were having the same game and instead he had a very different game going on and he's like <laughs> like and he and i think the cows make the decision finally They're like i'm sick of this and boom over the ridge they go and so then i gotta go relocate them and then i get back on the calls and we're talking again and then they're gone again and gone again and i did that for years and finally i was like man i don't enjoy chasing elk over multiple drainages a day, uh, what would happen if I just was quiet and just hung out with these guys um, once I knew where they were at? And so it kind of was an evolution where it, the other thing is, is when elk are in a herd, I've, I've seen some amazing things that I've gotten away with. They almost get a little sloppy when they've got, you know, a big pile of elk together. They almost get a little sloppy. They trust in each other, I guess, or whatever. You know, yeah. somebody's look out. Um, and so I've had really good luck just hanging out with them in really open country at times. I mean, I had a scenario a few years ago in Montana, we had probably, it was in October, so the elk had already kind of um, herded up and, and it, we'd had a big snow. And so they, they got in this big ball and there was probably 150 plus elk in it. And there was one really big bull, a 340 plus type bull for an over-the-counter unit in Montana. It was over-the-counter for residents. I want to be clear about that. I don't want to give bad information on the podcast, but an over-the-counter unit for residents a great bull and the odds of killing that bull out of 150 elk you're just and it's open really open terrain yeah. big fresh faces and you're looking at it going okay well i gotta try yeah you shoot to get hot and um anyway i was with a friend of mine isaiah joner and we, we i basically said hey you take this i think you've got a better shot here i'll take this approach and we're just basically going to make i always call it custer's last stand too when I'm ghosting with a herd like that, especially a bigger herd, at, uh, if I'm doing an interception style, at some point in time, you're probably going to make an all-in move that is either going to work or you're going to have to completely reboot because you're going to spook them or they're going to get ahead of you, right? So interception style is my favorite way to hunt elk when they're moving you know, to or from. And that's usually in the morning. In the evening, they'll pop out of bed and they'll stage too long and you kind of have to just ghost into them in the evenings. Cause they'll stage forever and then they'll, then they'll make a move. But in the mornings, they usually move quite a ways from where they're feeding to where they're bedding. And again, at some point in time, you're going to make a decision. All right, that tree or that saddle, that location, I think I'm going to, you know, the trajectory is going to be right. And I'm going to get my shot. Well, we both set up and did that. And believe it or not, I had the biggest bull come by me. I had 80 elk within 40 yards over a 10, 15 minute period. And the biggest bull came right by me at 26 yards Full draw, but there was one little branch that he, he came downhill of me just a little bit further than the other cows had come. And I just didn't feel like it was an ethical shot. So I let him, plus he was walking toward my buddy, right? So I'm not going to be a jerk and yeah. take a, a marginal shot and blow the whole thing up. 
So not only did the biggest bull in the herd come right by me, but then he went right by Isaiah. Now I'm going to rat Isaiah out on a podcast here and say he missed him by a mile because it was <laughs> his first opportunity at a truly big bull. And I mean, I got up there and I knew he had a shot opportunity because this bull went right by where I'd set him up too. And I'm like, and I could just see it on his face. And I'm like, did you shoot? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, did you get him? No. I'm like, where, where did you hit? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> he was so you know, that's that other side, the management side. But the point being in those scenarios, um, again, that ghosting in a herd of that size, you'd think just isn't going to have a chance, but you kind of learn how elk move in the habitat. And again, you, you will have to make a decision at some point in time. I'm going to set up here. And if they get past me, I'll probably not catch them again until they are in their bedding area yeah. or they may veer on me and I may be on the wrong side of the wind and blow the whole thing up. When you're ghosting a herd, how much do you worry about not blowing it up? Like, will you be on the conservative side and and try to like, OK, I, if I go here, it may not work out, but it also won't blow up in my face. Or are you like, OK, let's just let's make it happen. I think there's a solid chance that killing this ball if we can get in there. I mean, how much do you worry about not uh, future opportunities, if, if you will? Well, I think, you know, the right call is to try to kill him now. Right. Uh, again, if you're hunting, especially if you're hunting public land, highly pressured elk, you may not see the bull. You're, you finally found a yeah. bull. You, want to, you may not see that bull again tomorrow. Like, yeah. you know, um, so I do try to be fairly aggressive at that point, providing that the wind is pretty consistent. Um, the other thing that I will say is, is usually spikes and raghorns don't have much credibility with the herd. And so, you know, if you spook one of those in the process of this, which is likely because they'll come downwind of you, they're, you know, they're circling around and making a problem for the herd bull and for you too. I've had, I've had really good luck with just letting them run off and not getting panicked. And, you know, the rest of the elk are kind of like, eh, it's, you know, these what they do. yeah, he just doesn't know any better. It's just a bull, you know, young bull being a young bull. So I just don't think they have much credibility in the herd. Yeah. Honestly. You know, it's funny. I've had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with spikes that are standing 30 yards from me about which way he's going to run. <laughs> like, <laughs> you'd be dogging a herd. And this this happened to me in Idaho. I was following this herd. And, it, it, you know, bugling wasn't working. So I'm like, he had multiple satellites that were way more important to him than I was. And so I was like, well, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to keep following this herd. They keep following this herd. And there was like one spike. And he, I would get close. And he would he would let me walk right up to him. And I get close and then he'd look at me and he'd run right towards the herd. I was like, you and I need to have a conversation. You need to go that way. So then pretty soon I'm like dogging the herd, trying to get to where he's going to spook away from the herd. And I do that and he spooks away from the herd. And I get to where like, okay, this, this is a good pinch point. They had like started milling around. Like I was within range of cows and this spike look over here comes a spike. And he had come, like he had spooked away come up the drainage and came was like looking at me and I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And he just spooks and runs right through the middle of the herd and they all blow up and run over the next hill. I was like, God. <laughs> so yeah, I usually don't care, but I have had it screw up enough times or like if I, I won't care if a satellite can see me because usually they don't care. And, right. and, but I will try to make it. So when he does bump, he's not bumping towards the other elk. But they've also held me up to where like, I can't really move or like whatever. Yeah, like you said, they don't have much credibility with the herd unless they go running right through the middle. Yeah, they can ruin it. There's no question. I just don't get as panicked about it as I used to. I used to let them, you know, like you said, I'd, I'd let them paralyze me for an entire day. Yeah. Try, trying to go so long with elk. And I typically won't do that now. At some point in time, I'll eventually go, you know what? 
I don't want to kill this bull. I'm going to try it. I'm going to see if I can get him. Like you said, if I can get him to spook away from the herd, that's great. And oftentimes he will because, you know, the bull, the herd bull doesn't want him there anyway. And he's, he's already on the fringe for a reason. So he yeah. won't really run right into that. A lot of times I'll just kind of veer off, but yeah, it's again, it's one of those where you asked earlier or we, you know, when we were discussing, you know, what's the right call more often than not, you look back and go, Oh, I wish I'd have done that different. You know? <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, what about like, uh, like there's a line here because spikes really don't matter. Raghorns probably don't matter. And then like a satellite six, if I'm not going to shoot them, say there's a big herd bull and I've just got it in my head if that's the one, a big satellite or a bigger six, the thing that I've gotten in trouble with, I don't know if you have experience with this as well, but uh, if they bark at me, then the cows can get on edge. You know, and that's, that's the downside. Usually a a raghorn won't bark at me, but it's happened. And even then it won't really matter. But if a good, you know, mature six is sitting there barking at me, it's, it can be game over depending on how much that herd's been messed with. I totally agree with that. And I, you know, to your point, I rarely hear spikes and two-year-olds bark. It's usually like a three and a half plus year old bull for whatever reason. I have no idea yeah. why that happens, but that will bark and bark and bark. And you're like, mm-hmm. Oh, and it yeah, usually, no. it usually does ruin it. Um, you know, I've actually barked back at them with some success at times. You know, they're again, you're around elk often enough, you'll try anything, right? <laughs> like, well, what do I have to lose? Yeah, um, I have had them calm down barking back at them, but usually it's over. Yeah, well, it's not over, it's just a reset. You're gonna, they're gonna spook, and you're gonna have to work your butt off to get the terrain and the wind right again and get another opportunity. So, like, best case and worst case scenario, say. It doesn't go completely sideways, but it doesn't go well. Like, usually, it's never like a, well, I guess it's never. Sometimes they blow out of the country and it's over. You know when it's game over. But there's some times where they kind of bump, or like a cow might have saw something she didn't like, but it's definitely not game over. What's your, like, go-to reset time frame? Like, wait till tomorrow, wait till the afternoon, keep pushing. And obviously, this is going to depend on where you're at, public, because they're pressured, all these things. But, like, I guess what's... What's your scale of rules, if you will, on when to reapproach and herd elk? Well, you know, I'm out there to hunt elk, so I don't ever head back to camp. Um, you know, it's one of those deals where I may, though, take a strategic three-hour nap. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, again, it's one of those where it's like, hey, I can walk on the backside of this ridge where the wind can't get me. And then, you know, and sometimes I hunt a lot into October because Montana's archery season goes clear into mid-October. And I usually burn up my September in other places and then hunt October in Montana. Um, and a lot of times it's cold. So I'll go someplace, I'll hike far enough away that maybe I can build a fire and take a nap and, you know, let them reset. Uh, but if I can stay with them, that's what I'll do. Like if they spook and they're moving, whether it's open enough that I can see them cross a big valley and go over a saddle, then I'll haul butt to that saddle and try to get, get an eyeball on them again or, or ears. Um, if it's timber, I'll try to just listen, you know, if they're not calling, which a lot of times they won't, a lot of times a herd bull will bugle behind them as they're leaving. Um, but then eventually it'll kind of quiet up. And then it's just, you're trying to keep audio on hoof, hooves, breaking sticks and hitting logs. And that little bit of audio, I've followed out quite a ways just on that little bit of audio in timber. And then eventually they kind of settle down a little bit. And then I try to like back off and be in earshot for when they fire back up or whatever, you know, 
is your go-to, like, say, hypothetical situation, elk, it doesn't work out. You try to intercept, but they keep pushing up to wherever they're going to go bed. Uh, they, you know they bedded down probably on this bench somewhere up in there. Are you going to try to approach them midday while they're in their bed, or are you going to wait till they get up? Well, I like, you know, I've had really good luck killing kill elk from first thing in the morning all the way. I actually kill most of my elk in the middle of the day through the evening. Um, I haven't had as good a luck killing bulls first thing in the morning for whatever reason, but, um, that's probably not, probably a third, a third and a third, honestly, probably a third in the morning, a third in the middle of the day and a third in the evening. Um, I like afternoon winds because the, you know, typically speaking, if there's not a storm front or whatever else, you get that upward, you know, the heat is creating those upward thermals. And so even if you get on the wrong side of the wind, quote unquote, um, the, the wind doesn't stay trapped on the ground as far. And so you can actually get away with more in the afternoon, in my opinion. In the morning, your wind is just clamped to the ground like a vice. All that cool air is grabbing you, sticking on the ground. And if elk comes 400 yards underneath you, it's probably going to smell you, right? But in the afternoon, even if an elk gets on the wrong side of you, most of the time your wind is coming up and off the ground. And I've had really good luck with the playing the wind in the afternoon. Um, it's less consistent. But even if it swirls on you a little bit, again, the heat is trying to pick that wind up off the ground. Yeah. Um, I love it in the afternoon. I'll just, again, that's that whole thing. It's real simple for me. Get as close as I can for as long as I can. And that includes from daylight, from before daylight, yeah. not hunting before daylight. I want to be clear about that. But I'm ghosting with them before daylight, right? All the way till dark. I, yeah. I, if I'm close, I'm in the game. Yeah. And, well, the, I mean, like, like you said, the, the downside in the morning is that usually – Elk, elk behavior, so to speak, is like, okay, they're feeding all night. And a lot of times they'll just pick up and go in the morning. And so a lot of guys, what happens is they get a bull bugling and then they're like, oh, he just, I bugled and he went away. I'm like, no, he was going to his bed and mm -hmm. he shut up because that was his daily routine. He would bugle all the way to his bed and then shut up and bed down. Like you didn't really change anything about that, but he was going faster than you could walk. Uh, yep. And he was going where he was going. He was probably following a cow and the cow didn't care. Uh, and so the tough part, even ghosting a herd can be very difficult in the morning because you're trying to follow elk. And if anybody's ever followed elk very long, you know that they walk at about your run. Uh, so it gets difficult. And then in the evening, my problem has always been, I get a little too, little too excited and go a little too early when, you know, they get that, that shift. So they get up about that shift and then the wind's swirling and doing all crazy things. And, and, uh, you know, then that just never works for its own reasons. Yeah, for sure. And and again, that's why I like the interception model for morning hunting more than a ghosting model. Like I said, I'm trying to figure out where they're going to go. You know, if I can get eyes on them, that's great. And, you know, I can figure out a saddle or somewhere where I think they're going to head um, or just, I, you know, just knowing elk, you try to figure out, okay, I think they're going to, they're here eat, feeding. They're probably going to bed in one of these timber pockets or whatever. And I'm going to get there before they do and cut them off at the pass. And yeah. then like I said, if that doesn't happen, if they get past you, then it's a, it turns into kind of a ghost, like just that close as I can, long as I can model. And that works really good up to your point up until, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon usually is when elk really start getting up on their feet and milling around. But they, again, like I said, a lot of times they'll get up and they'll, they might move a little ways, but it's not enough to intercept. And, and then they stage and they'll just stay there forever. Yeah. And you're like, Oh my goodness, just move. I need you to move, you know? Um, and then at that sort of critical time when the wind switches again is, and then they'll, about then is when they'll kind of make another move. 
And all too often, I'm on the wrong side of the wind when that happens. <laughs> what's what's too close or what's the right distance? You know, you say, like, I just want to get close, be in proximity. I think that's great advice. But, like, what is that distance and, and how does that change? Well, if they're in their bed, you know, and you're not and you don't have an opportunity to stalk in their bed. And I have shot a couple bulls in their beds, um, but the conditions have to be perfect. Right. It was rainy. It was, you know, just everything was just right. The bull bedded on the wrong side of the herd for the win. It was perfect for me, bad for him. <laughs> so if you don't have an opportunity to stock them in their bed, it, you're too close, in my opinion. You want to be close enough that you can hear them. If they get up, if they if he starts bugling, or if they're going to move, if they get bumped or whatever, which happens, um, but you're too close if the wind can swirl and bite you and, and run them off. So yeah. that's kind of how I look at it when they're actually in their beds. Now, as soon as they, like I said, in that, in that late afternoon, when they get up, I want to be as close as I can again, because he'll start walking around and bumping cows that are bedded down and checking them. And, you know, he just gets antsy before they do, honestly. And, and if I'm close enough that he can come into a bow range uh, shooting lane, then great news, right? Yeah, for sure. One of the things you had mentioned, um, and I want to touch on before we end is uh, you were talking about October for Montana. Have you found that some of the bigger bulls have started peeling off of the herd uh, or are you just kind of like, Hey, I'm hunting herd bulls, whatever herd bull is still in there in early October uh, is, is great. I'm, I'm stoked with that. Or, you know, what have you seen as far as elk behavior for that October season? No, that's a great question. I mean, for one, the rut is still, I think, I think the rut gets prolonged in public land over the counter areas, right? Cause elk are, it's not like a whitetail where he'll pick a doe out and he'll lock her down and they'll definitely get the job done. You've got a bull that's already getting harassed by other bulls. He's trying to maintain a herd. And then you've got public land hunters bumping him and bumping him. And so a lot of times those cows don't get bred in that first cycle. I think that has more to do with it than anything. And then you get you know young cows too coming in for the first time. I think it spreads the rut out a long ways in public land over the counter areas. Um, and so the rut can be really good in October, but I think Honestly, and I think this is true even in September on heavily hunted areas, big bulls aren't as interested in managing a herd as they are in finding a hot cow. Yeah. And so if there's a hot cow there, they'll there will be the most mature bull. You know, he wants to breed. He doesn't care. He doesn't get tired of breeding. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think he he wants to be there if if he has an opportunity to carry on his genetic code, he's gonna be there. But he knows, whereas a two and a half, three and a half year old bull doesn't know. Yeah. He, He's like, ah, I've seen the biggest bulls. This happened to me a lot in the Missouri breaks because um, you get to see elk really well from a distance and see what they do. I've seen big bulls migrate through two or three herds in one evening, basically bumping in there, scent checking everybody, deciding, nope, nobody's here, nobody's ready, and just move on. Really? I think in October they get even more like that where they're just like a hound dog looking for a hot biscuit. Yeah, and that's the thing I've seen is like most of the herds – Herd bull is such a loose term. Uh, people use it incorrectly. Uh, I've seen a lot of herd bulls or bulls with herds in even late September, but definitely in, in early October where it's like, that's definitely not the herd bull by any stretch of the imagination. You're talking about a 260, 270 bull, you know, maybe a 300 inch bull. And this will happen in early September. You guys are like, oh yeah, there's a herd bull. He's going nuts. I'm like, eh, you know, he's confused about life and he's really excited. Um, that'll change in the next two weeks. And so like, you all, <laughs> and I think there's like a critical time where like the big bulls will get, in my opinion, get sucked into rut behavior or the rut fest, if you will. Uh, I think their emotions get the best of them. Testosterone gets the best of them. 
and you see like this where you have you know a lot of hot cows you know you a percentage of hot cows out of a herd and every bull in the area is going nuts and there becomes a rut fest right uh but outside of that the onesies twosies of cows in heat equals usually a smaller bull tending the herd and big bulls lurking in the shadows and that that could be the hardest thing in the world is like okay here's a bull that doesn't really talk he doesn't hang out with the herd uh and you know probably beds in some nasty coolie uh somewhere and finding that can be really difficult for sure and to your point i think that in october it gets even worse because every bull gets a little excited you know early august they start rubbing their velvet their hormones are changing i mean they're ready to roll and but two months in you know i think that that big bull that mature bull he's had a lot of bad encounters with humans um he's way more prone to not behave like a typical prototypical herd bull and he becomes harder to find there's no question Uh, again the missouri breaks in montana were a great place to witness a lot of that where you would be glassing these nasty thick little coolies and all of a sudden you're like oh i see a tip of an antler and it's like well that's the biggest bull i've seen in a week and he's all by himself meanwhile there's bulls rutting quote unquote all over screaming chasing cows mm-hmm. and this bull isn't done rutting necessarily he just knows nothing's ready right now yeah yeah yeah. he's he's keeping tabs on everything and it's easier i mean for me like even while i talk some 301 stuff like finding a giant bull is much easier set like first week of september Let's see, season Montana season opens up with the fifth this year. That first week, let's say up until the seventh or so, and this could be wildly dependent, but the big bull's probably close to the herd. Like he's not that far away, but he's hanging out doing his own thing. He's not covering a ton of ground. Where finding that bull in October, he's also not with the herd, but he could be going 20 miles a day, you know, checking yep. cows. And that's like that gets tricky. So when you like let's throw out a hypothetical situation. You glass up a 380 bull that's kind of cruising uh, by himself. What's your, what's your game plan? You're like, oh, that was a cool sight to see, or like, how do you even keep tabs? How do you find him? Like, how do you, or is it just like if there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity, and if not, it luck didn't strike. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that you know when you see an elk, you should try everything you can to that you really want to kill. You should try to kill him right then. Um, yeah. And so I'll I'll go all in. I mean, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I drew Nevada and uh, we finally found a bull. We were on top of a peak glassing a lot of country, a long ways, which again is something we haven't touched on. But man, get where you can see a long ways. You can see out 10, 12 miles away with good optics. And if you're just trying to be in the game, you're, you don't really care. You, you can't see how big a bull is that far. But if you can see elk, get there the next morning and yeah. get out, right? But that was one of these scenarios about six miles north of us. We saw a big bull roll out, a true big bull, you know, that that 370 plus class type bull. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it was right at dark um, and he's six miles north of us. Right. I can't get there tonight, but I can be up at three o'clock in the morning and be right where he was at daylight the next day, which we were. And there was about 20, 30 cows and he was acting real ruddy. Right. He was, you know, tearing up the ground, making rubs, bugling in the spotting scope. So I thought, man, he'll be on those cows. There was a 340 type bull with the cows. I was like, man, he's going to bump that bull out and be with them. But it was too early. Again, he's an old bull. He knows better. So sometime in the night, he wandered through, probably checked the cows and just headed north, I guess. We never saw that bull again. I was in there for, I don't know, 12, 13 more days and all over in a 10 mile radius, open country too, by the way. I saw hundreds of bulls during that time. Never saw him again. 
And I would have given anything for it to, to have seen him in the morning yeah. and a six mile, you know, gut check to try to get as fast as you can to where you last saw him and have that evening to hunt him. But that's a good, good example of, and I've seen it a lot early mid season, late season. When you see a bull, you really want to kill. You should try to kill him right then. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so true. Well, I want to kind of get into that. Like I would love to, to pick your brain on like finding bulls in open country, finding big bulls, big bulls move way too far. Like, are you looking for cows? I mean, obviously you kind of made a good point. Like it's a lot like deer, like get as good vantage and glass as much country as you can find as many elk as you can. Is it just a matter like is finding big bulls just a matter of looking over numbers? Is it a numbers game? Man, you're probably asking the wrong guy here. I've I've had really good success killing all, uh, quite a few elk between 300 and 340 inches, right? Yeah. Um, and then you got guys like like, you know, like Randy Ulmer and Dan and Casey Brooks and a lot of other guys that have consistently killed 350 to 400 inch bulls. Um, I haven't had that kind of good fortune, so you know, take my advice for what it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it is, you know, early on, I do know I've talked to those guys enough early on. It's about, you know, keep relocating groups of cows because eventually those big bulls will cycle through and check them, you know, peak of the rut. It is a bit of a numbers game. And then honestly, again, this is what, you know, you said Barclow said he never trusts his intuition. And sometimes I think that's true for me too, where I've seen those guys turn big, big bulls up in places you would never expect to even see an elk. Right. So trying to think outside the box a little bit. And I got trapped in, in, in that Nevada hunt. I was hunting the table mountain. Um, it's no secret. I was hunting in, uh, you know, 161 to 164 unit group. Great. I mean, I could have killed an elk with a spear every day in there. Right. It was the most phenomenal hunt I've ever had. Right. I probably passed up somewhere between 20 and 30 bulls at point blank ranges. Phenomenal hunt. Killed a great bull at the end, but not, not that 370 type bull you were hoping. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, I guess the point is, is, um, I got sucked into look, looking where I, there was elk all the time. I mean, there were hundreds of elk up on the plateau and it was spun. And, you know, next thing you know, it's the middle of September and your hunt's one day short of ending. And you're like, uh Oh, I haven't killed one yet. You know, yeah. uh, I haven't found other than early in the season, I haven't found a bull that I even really wanted to kill. So do you think it's a matter of not turning the big bulls up where there's a lot of elk or is it a matter of it's too hard to keep calves on those elk? So like in hunting, there's this, there's a thing where a lot of these greats choose places where if they found one, it's a very killable situation. Uh, take, take like, let's just say mountains in first desert, right? So you find an elk in the mountains, he can disappear because there's a lot of trees. If you find an elk in the desert, he can't disappear very much harder to find elk in desert but easier to find them in the mountain right so like choosing that location it goes back to like looking for a wife in a gay bar if you're hunting an area that doesn't have any elk then it's going to be hard to kill an elk right and I, I i do see that a lot of the greats i mean granted they have really nice tags and it, i mean people are going to be arguing like oh yeah casey brooks only hunts reservations other things. he is one of the best elk hunters out there i don't care where he hunts uh if if you choose areas that are have a higher likelihood of killing when you do find that makes a huge huge difference for sure would you agree with that totally agree yeah in fact i mean i'm going to use a deer hunt as an example like i shared with you my son and i are leaving he's got his first ever uh deer tag archery deer tag mule deer tag in nevada 
And I, there's a, there's three or four mountain ranges to choose from. And one of them has a lot of deer on it and a lot of, and some really big bucks I've got Intel on. Yeah. I'm not going to hunt it because he's, an, he, well, I don't think I would hunt it even if I had the tag, right? He has the tag. I don't, it's just uh, looking at it. It's a low percentage opportunity to close stocks. It's great, big, huge, wide open faces, very little cover, very little topography. I'm like, Okay, I could stare. I've never killed an elk through my spotting scope. I've tried, but I've never successfully <laughs> done that, right? So, yeah, there is something to be said for recognizing what winds do in the mountains versus in the in the flats. Um, also, even recognizing what the wind's going to do in your given topography that you're looking at. Like, this little basin is probably going to be terrible. Um, I got a way better shot out on this little ridge. Um, so, like, taking that into consideration... But yeah, you're right. The the best guys are hunting the best tags, um, and they don't deny that either. But like you said too, they they would also kill the best bulls uh, in the other units too. They're very yeah. good, hunters, right? I mean, look yeah. at Dan Evans. Dan Evans killed a 360 bull in North Idaho. I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> the unicorn. I think, I think it was the last one. <laughs> Way to go, Dan. <laughs> uh, no, I think yeah. it, I think it's right. I think it, like, but you know, and. I, I don't know, because you could you could argue that the best hunters will be able to kill based on what type of hunt. Like they have enough tools in the toolbox to be able to execute on no matter what the hunt is, where it is, or whatever. And I I think that's a really cool trait. You know, I'd love to be able to go hunt and I, I've said this on the podcast before, but I'd love to be able to like look at an elk in a burn and feel like I'm hundred percent confident I could kill that bull. But if he gets bumped, I'm hundred percent confident I could kill that bull in the timber as well. You know, yeah. that's a dangerous place. Uh and then it just becomes I got to get better at finding these things. Yeah, that's one of my big issues. Like I said, finding those that truly next level, because I have had a, a few, you know, good tags yeah. that I haven't been able to find, even find that next, next level bull on. Um, so, you know, that's one of those where I'm like looking in the wrong spot. At the right. Well, I'll give you an example on that Nevada hunt. So the very next year, um, I, again, I couldn't even find a, a bull over 340 the rest of the season. The very next year, a hunting fool member drew the tag. And I told him about a little burn that I had found a bunch of bulls in. He went in there the very first day, same exact time I was in there the last year, saw a really big bull up on the, in the burn, which I only saw, you know, smaller, like three, 320 type bulls and went up on the ridge, blew a cow call once the bull walked in 10 yards broadside, shot it through the heart. It was 372. Oh God. I literally tore that mountain apart the year before. And I told him exactly where to go glass and look at this thing. And he kills a 370 bull right there. So, yeah, some of it's luck, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about hunting is like you can't really master it because there's too many variables. <laughs> I know. That's why I love it. Oh, for sure. For sure. And like, I don't know, for me, like it's definitely the search for that next level bull has become as fun as calling in bulls, as fun as shooting bulls. And like, I just like, you know, taking it to the next level. Trying to, I love spending time around elk. And I've said this before that, you know, when I shoot an elk, the season's over. I really like finding elk. So for me, I'm more about like, if I see, even if I see a 320 bull, I'm like, cool, let's go to the next ridge. What's the next one? You know, like I, instead of going shoot the 320 bull, I want to go see if I can find something else, which like equates to a lot of tags too, but you know. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Uh, well, what, what tags you got this year, by the way? Uh, I got lucky and drew an Idaho moose tag. Oh, so wow. pumped about that. Yeah, it's one of the longer seasons down on the south end of the state. So I'll spend, you know, the majority of my focus this year will be on that outside of this Nevada deer tag for my son. 
And then I'll buy an over-the-counter Idaho tag in the same zone that my moose tag is in. Um, Don't get distracted there. Yeah, no, that's the problem with me. I get distracted pretty easy But uh, when elk get involved. But, yeah, that's honestly, then, you know, there's tags here and there, Utah tag. Um, and I don't know, it'll be an interesting season. I was going to go to Alaska and help guide on a grizzly bear hunt. And, uh, again, with COVID and all the other crud that's going on, there's all kinds of changes in plans. So I got a pretty open schedule. Yeah. Big bull located and you want you know i can get a tag and you want me to come go after it with you cody give me a call yeah i can just come <laughs> on you can just show me how to do it uh i was gonna say like what's your guys is like from the hunting pool perspective the guys call in and ask like are, i'm sure this cat question comes up like it what's your guys's opinion and this is official or non-official i don't really care on it are they going to shut down non-resident hunting in certain places due to covid like uh i know there's a ton of guys with non-resident tags that are like like for us, uh, my Patreon, one of our Patreons drew a hunt. We're going to New Mexico. And I'm like, the other day I got an email from the airline and they changed the flight. Uh, cause he's flying down from Alaska. They changed the flight and I was like, it's over, you know, like just panic the whole time. Uh, so, I mean, do you got, what's, what's your guys' stance? You think they'll close I think down? Alaska and Hawaii are going to be the only messy ones. Um, you know, Alaska right now you have to get pre you have to ha- show up at the airport with a negative COVID test. Yeah. Uh, they just changed that. Um, but I think they're going to leave that open. But at the village level, we're already running into trouble. So Dillingham just shut down flights to non-residents into there. So we just had a, last, a brown bear hunt uh, got canceled. That uh, is a real bummer because they just got through with their commercial fishing season there with thousands of non-residents in and out of that Dillingham area. And now you're talking about a few hundred guys that are going to come in for moose and brown bear hunts and caribou. But, you know, at money. a village. It's all about oh, that money. Yeah, buddy. I was so irritated when I found that out this morning. But, you know, bottom line is the village level has autonomy to say, and I get it. Like a lot of those villages are super remote with poor medical care. Yeah. Um, so at the village level, you might run into some problems in Alaska. Hawaii, of course, is is shut. They don't want anybody showing up on the island. And I don't blame them, I guess. But then here in the U.S., the lower 48, I, I don't think you're going to see interstate travel restricted. Um, I really don't. OK, I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, talking to Cole Kramer a little bit about it and uh kind of worried about the whole Kodiak thing because he already lost all of his spring hunts. Uh, now they're looking at, you know, are they going to keep it open for for fall hunts? Uh, man, I would think it'd be, uh, who knows? <laughs> Highly unlikely that fall hunts are going to go. But I do have a lot of buddies that are going to Alaska this year and they're like, okay, I got, you know, set up to do my, I, one, I just talking to uh, Tyson, my buddy who's here in the shop and uh, he's headed to Alaska next week. So he's got to have his COVID negative test 72 hours before they get there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting time for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 All righty. Well, I appreciate it, Lyle, so much. Good luck this year. Good luck on the moose hunt. Good luck on the deer hunt coming up. Uh, hope you guys do well. Uh, hope everything goes smoothly. That's, that's the best thing you can hope for, right? Yeah, smoothly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no trips where I have five flat tires. That's all I hope for. Yes. Exactly. All righty. Uh, well, I appreciate it. And thanks again, Lyle.